Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Who are you? I am Mr. Tiltereisa. Who am I? You are some random bloke who wandered in off the street and suddenly thought he was a podcaster. Ho-ho! A.K.A. Gary Roger. Now, today we are talking about something that we've had on the slate for many, 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 many months. We've been talking about this for ages, and we've finally got around to it. We're going to be discussing the history of nighttime and particularly overnight broadcasting in the United Kingdom. Now, let us say a quick word for any listeners on the overseas service. If you happen to have a browse of, say, a copy of the Radio Times these days, you might think, well, what on earth is there to talk about? BBC shows the news channel simulcast overnight. BBC Two shows trailers. ITV has a text service. And all the other channels just basically have, I suppose you would say, the televisual equivalent of an iPod on shuffle. So what is there exactly to discuss? Well, 24-hour television in the UK is still a relatively new phenomenon. It's less than 30 years old. And when it was really new, brand new, it was a novelty and it was treated like such. And they used to actually make programmes for it and spend money on it and have unique continuity for it and all sorts. There was sometimes even people actually there in continuity suites live overnight when that kind of practice had been dropped from daytime and evening broadcasting. Amazing. So we're going to have a good old look at that. Going all the way back to 1951, to the present day, in the next hour or so. Before we delve into the archives, Till, do you have any particular happy memories of Through the Night television? Just the eye dents, really. I'm struggling to think of programmes. Actually, they did show Inspector Derrick dubbed into English. Things like that. Just the faint oddity of it all. It was off the beaten track. And even when it wasn't, even when they were showing something fairly humdrum, the idents made you feel like you were in some other world. Even though it was just normal Yorkshire continuity announcers. I'm particularly thinking of the night shift ident. Well, the bloke with the saxophone. The bloke with the saxophone, the woman in that weird sort of moon-shaped swing. And yes, it did feel like it was being separately programmed, separately thought about. It was a really short period, wasn't it, though? It was. I mean... Realistically, we are talking here about a period of no more than 12, 13 years before things get very dull. But we're going to have a good plunder into all of this. We're going to start, like I said, right at the outset, 1951. The second BBC election night broadcast, the engineers at the time, because this was the first one that had actually been proposed to go on all the way to 4am, the BBC engineers at the time had expressed their concern, this is a quotation, that the transmitters might blow up if they were left on for that long. Thankfully, they did not, and so future broadcasts at that time of the night could happen. However, they didn't really happen again for another, what are we, 18 years, realistically? You've got instances where the BBC starts to push back the transmission times ever so slightly. So say, for example, BBC Two comes up with a strand called The Midnight Movie in the late 1960s. The Olympic Games from Mexico in 1968 Quite often the coverage of that would go on until 4am and there'd be a break for a few hours and then they'd come back with a, a roundup at breakfast time. So actually that's sort of killing two parts of one stone because that's a nice little early instance of both overnight programming and breakfast TV programming as well, which we've already covered on Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Just have a look in the archive and you'll find our discussion about breakfast programming from a few months ago. However, the first instance, as far as we can tell, the first instance of genuine 24-hour broadcasting with no gap whatsoever is the moon landing 
21st of July 1969, both BBC One and ITV. Now, here's the odd thing about this. Like I say, from everything that we can tell, and of course, everybody knows there's no footage of this surviving in the archives, so it's impossible to actually check it properly. But from the material that appears in the Radio Times and the TV Times, both broadcasters stayed on the air. ITV was a bit more active. They had their sort of hybrid program with David Frost and Alistair Burnett, for example. The timings on both channels were changed because the timings of the moonwalk were changed on the night itself. But BBC One's listing makes it quite clear that they don't actually have an all-night service as such. It simply says that the BBC's transmitters will remain on air all night in order then to bring people news and pictures and so on. So even though this is actually the first instance of 24-hour TV, it's not really the first instance of a 24-hour schedule. You know, I mean, presumably, I'm not. this is not a spoiler, you know what happens, they walked on the moon and then they came back. If you didn't know that by now... Uh, really somewhere there being. should be a P as B form, paperwork somewhere saying what was transmitted, if anything. If you have such a P as B form for the early hours of the 21st of July 1969, please get in touch with us. We are at Jaffas for Proust on Twitter and also feedback at sitcomclub.com. Please You're one of those know. people with access to certain parts of the BBC's internal server. You should be oh, able to pull it up. Can't talk about that kind of thing. No, you can. <laughs> I don't think it should be any shocking secret. Some people who work for the BBC have access to the BBC's internal server. We're not betraying a confidence there. It's how organisations work. If you're one of those people who has such access, you might be able to pull up details for what exactly went out on the moon landing. It's how we know what went out uh, on the last day of the television service in 1939. Somebody had to write down what happened, not what was scheduled, but what actually went out. Well, of course, this is how, because I was really careful there to, to emphasise that even though it says on the internet that the first 24-hour broadcast was the moon landing, as far as we can tell, that is actually correct. Whereas if you put in something like Mickey Mouse, BBC, wartime, then you're going to get some inaccurate information coming back. And we don't need to go into that just now, because I'm sure we've talked about that before. So that's 1969. So when do you reckon then? When would you reckon till without any reference to notes or anything like that? Now, we've proved that we can do 24-hour broadcasting with the transmitters and what have you. When do you reckon that we're actually going to get maybe like another all-night broadcast? 1970, perhaps? 71? 72? Oh, 74 has got to be a given, surely. Because the political situation was so crazy that we had two general elections that year. We did have two general elections. And we even had, of course, August 1974, we even had President Nixon giving a statement in the White House in the early hours of the morning. However, you'll be shocked to learn that none of those occasions actually produced 24-hour broadcasts. Not even the elections of 1974. They still had a two-hour gap from 4 to 6 a.m. We do have further instances of them pushing back the boundaries, so to speak, on special occasions. For example, when colour officially goes live, because, of course, you know, we know that, that colour test transmissions and BBC2 and so on went all the way back to 1967. But on the first official night of colour, we had... Miss Apatrilla Clark in concert at the stroke of midnight on BBC One on Saturday the 15th of November 1969. There's no good reason, there was no reason why that had to be on at midnight. I don't think there was any, to the best of my knowledge, there was no kind of sort of union-based reason why that had to go out after midnight. But it's quite nice actually making like a little sort of ceremony about it. Sticking it to ITV. Well, now you say that. And to be fair, yeah, ITV, most of the regions are just sort of mincing about with repeats of 
chopper squad or whatever. However, Granada, quite a forward-thinking station, up for a bit of experimentation, they are not going to take this line down. And they have scheduled for quarter past midnight a film in colour of the Rolling Stones concert at Hyde Park. How about that then? The only problem was, of course, that the ACTT didn't allow them to screen it. They got as far as putting it in TV Times and that day's newspapers. However, the film had been made before the colour trial period. And so the ACTT blacked it. So there you go. So colour actually started on ITV officially at 5 to 1 on the following day on the Saturday. We've got our little breakfast time experiment in 1977, which we spoke about at length on that breakfast TV programme, Yorkshire Time Tease. But nighttime experiments are much more scarce, I suppose you would say. There is, in case anybody's shouting this just now, at their speaker slash headphones slash whatever, there is the Thames Telephone of 1980, but that was not a 24-hour broadcast. That only went on until 3 a.m. 1980. This is, this is absolutely stunning. Now, I can't really believe that this is a case, but I genuinely mean this. I know that sometimes people will say, oh, if you know any different, it's like an offer saying at the front of a book, if, if you've got any clarification or corrections or whatever, then do let us know when you sort of think, well, do you really want me to let you know? Or are you going to write me a passive-aggressive letter in response for pointing out where you've got like a semicolon instead of a colon? But if you know any differently and you know that this is not the case I'm about to say, please let us know because we really would like to know and we'll actually we'll re-release this podcast and stick an addendum at the end of it. The first instance that we can find of a properly programmed 24-hour block, this is so odd, the American election of 1980, but it's not the coverage of the election itself. ITN's coverage went on till 2am, they then returned at 7am with a broadcast. You'd think, incidentally, that that 7am broadcast might have been a nice little sort of nod to the IBA, who are going to make a decision in about seven weeks' time to say, hey, look, you know, we can do breakfast programming, no problem here, but we've talked about that elsewhere. So the ITV region switched off at 2am, all except for Granada, Grampian, and Southern, and they take a five-hour program called The American All-Night Show. Effectively, this is Clive James on television, but hosted by Ned Sheridan. Now, Till, I've sent you the review from Nancy Banks-Smith in The Guardian, and it sort of looks exactly like that. It looks like they've got Ned Sheridan, presumably just sat there by himself doing pre-recorded links, and they're telling you about how bloody awful a lot of American TV is. And they've got lots and lots of instances. So they've got cheap game shows and sketch shows and all this kind of thing. And they're pumping these out for a straight five hours to bridge the gap in the ITN program. <sighs> Do you think that perhaps this was a, a sort of unspoken pilot? Did they think that perhaps there was a, an audience for cheap programming overnight? We've got this period between 1972 and 1982. 1972 is when daytime opens up properly on ITV. There had been daytime programming right at the beginning. That had collapsed because the money wasn't there. There wasn't the audience for ITV when it started out, and so they start looking at making savings wherever they can, and daytime is one of the first things to go. Daytime comes back, it's permitted, and finally it might actually be profitable for daytime television. That's when things like Emmerdale Farm and Rainbow start. They're specifically made for daytime. 1980, when was it decided that breakfast television was going to happen? Well, that was advertised in the 
run-up to the awards for 1980, and the award was made in December of 1980. But it was, I think it was early 1980 the announcement was actually made that there's going to be a breakfast television franchise. And then soon after that, the BBC responded and said, well, we're going to be planning something similar. So there is that consideration. Shall we just join everything up now? Is the idea of turning your transmitter off going to be committed to the past? So yeah, it sounds like a pilot. The fact that Granada's in the middle of it, it's interesting those two smaller regions joining in. But because one of the big five is involved, it sounds like something they've talked about, something they've thought about. Let's just do it. I mean, Yorkshire had tested breakfast television in 1977, even though that's five years before it really happens. And I think at some point it came way down the road, but when nighttime television came in, there was this idea of maybe that could be a franchise. Maybe we could sell that just like we sell the hours between 6 and 9.30. And of course, you can't survive as a company on midnight to 6. So yes, that's what I'm going to say. Just thinking about the way television was headed. If they'd done it in 1975, that's an entirely different thing. But the way television was headed, yeah, I think somebody with a far vision is going to think, maybe it's time. Maybe the 80s will be the time of 24-hour television. Now, this is beyond my research capabilities, because I suspect that this is the kind of thing that's going to be all tied up in internal memos. But I would be really fascinated to actually know what the process was by which those regions actually decided to carry that program. There's no surprise that Granada in particular, Granada, as we've said before, they're up for a bit of experimentation. They like doing different things, new things and so on. I am very interested in why Southern and Grampian of all the regions actually decided to take that show. No sign of... Southern's trying to reposition itself though, isn't it? In 1980, that's when things are beginning to change and they're too late for them really but they're definitely trying to position themselves a little bit like tvs did later they're beginning to position themselves as well maybe we're another one of the big showbiz giants so they start making sitcom soap operas and variety shows in a way they hadn't before and just to emphasize if you have access by the way to the guardian digital archives because a lot of the local libraries now offer it if you look this up it's from november 1980 and Nancy Banksmith's review in The Guardian is superb. We're talking about basically stuff that was worse than the gong show that used to go out on Channel 4 when Countdown was off for the summer. So there's certainly no attempt here. They're not trying to sneak out highbrow programming overnight and then hope that that ticks like a couple of boxes or anything like that. They're not trying to sneak out that three and a half hour opera that they're normally obliged to show once a year. Yeah, it's a really, really fascinating little instance. If you have any information at all about that program, if you have a copy of that program, get in touch, but I'm sure that you don't. So that's a one-off. But as far as we can tell, that is officially the first instance of an actual programmed 24-hour schedule. Now, we've got our instances in the 1980s of the channels pushing back the close-down time. So, for example, Channel 4 experiments with the late-night live editions of the Tube on occasion, for example. LWT runs a strand called Nightlife, which goes on to about half past two or so in the morning. But then we reach a real turning point, and this is actually where it, it really happens. August 1986, you can see this because amazingly it's actually on YouTube, and it's not bad quality either. The IBA authorises Yorkshire Television to carry the MTV competitor Music Box overnight for a period of three months, and this is full 24-hour television so i think the first one is at midnight through until 6 a.m and then it's going to be basically whatever time yorkshire 
closes down that night, they hand over to Music Box. And who is it that's actually our guide on the first night but Get Fresh's own Gaz Top? We actually have with us in the studio someone from that very region that was receiving <laughs> the Music Box test transmission. So I've got to ask yourself, Till, did you see any of this? Do you have any memory of this at the time of this happening? No. What? My parents would have killed me. I couldn't be up that late. Please. Did you have a video record on 1986? I can't remember. I had to be aware of it and I had to be bothered. <laughs> I know the jokes always used to be about how kids were the best at programming the video recorder. I'm not sure. Clearly, whatever it was, it was not calling to me. I don't remember hearing about it at the time. I wasn't in the demographic they were looking for. I do remember it being a thing because it was mentioned, of course, in the newspapers on ITN had a feature about it on the day itself and I remember sort of thinking, hey, why can't we have some of that? Why? Why? I actually do remember at the time thinking, why Yorkshire? Are they really into their music videos there or something? But you, well, only you can answer that. I can't answer that. So the people in the Yorkshire region, do they particularly appreciate music videos? Remember why TV had been there with breakfast? It might just be the business mind. It's probably just somebody in management has the will and is on the lookout for the main chance. Maybe it's Paul Lally wanting to say rocking through the night and seeing if he can carry it off in his Paul Lally voice. <laughs> now, no doubt the plans for that obviously were in place a lot earlier than August 1986, because, of course, that's when the actual service started. However, we've got a bit of an undercurrent going on here. I'm going to quote from the very fine independent television in Britain. This is volume five. This is well worth getting hold of, if you can. Now, we've got reference here to the outset of nighttime programming on ITV. It mentions here the Peacock Committee reporting in July 1986 had drawn attention to what it called the non-occupied nighttime hours, 1am to 6am, of the BBC and ITV television wavelengths, and it concluded that they should be sold for broadcasting purposes. Now, this was well received by certain members of the government at the time. Douglas Hurd who was the Home Secretary at the time, he was not entirely in favour of this. Much like, for example, say, David Mellor later on tried to make sure that it wasn't just going to be like a straightforward auction in 1991, that there had to be some sort of quality control. But he gave a speech in which he referred to the ITV companies exercising squatters' rights in the limited use of nighttime that they were making, and his civil servants indicated to the IBA that it should examine carefully whether ITV's nighttime hours if they remained unused, should not be sold to the highest bidder for the period of the extended contract, 1990-1992. The IBA in turn warned the companies that this was a matter they should take seriously. So, there we have it. So we've got this sort of veiled threat that if you don't use these hours, then they're going to be taken away from you. And I guess that that could set a sort of precedent then, which ITV companies would not be wanting to go down. So therefore, after the Music Box experiment... And after or so, Channel 4 starts nighttime programming. Not through the night, but they start nighttime programming in April of 1987. In 1987, we start to get all of these little regional offerings. And in all honesty, that this whole business about the regional offerings, this is something that ITV nighttime never really shakes off. At any point, whilst it's proper service, it's only really by the time that it's been completely run down and turned into the ITV night screen that we see nowadays that it's been completely networked. But throughout all of this time, even well into the 1990s, we've still got regional variations going on throughout. And it's actually quite strange 
just looking at the number of regions that, that really go into this, like head first, but we'll, we'll have a good look at this in, in detail. So in 1987, for example, we've got LWT running a strand called through to six. We've got Thames, first of all, pushing by close down and then going 24 hours. We've got Yorkshire Television's through till free. And I don't know if we've ever said this on the podcast before, but it can be confirmed that Yorkshire's through to free has a more impressive title sequence than Cannonball's Casino four years later. <laughs> Though the YTV Chevron stops at an awkward point. That's true. just kept yeah. spinning throughout the ident. Points deducted. I, I really like this as a, as a name in, which has had basically... I don't know how many meetings they would have had to come up with this name, but I do like it because it's almost like the sort of name that you would have come up with if you'd been put on the spot by RemD and you had to come up with something in the space of about two seconds. More central. Some of the regions actually have live local presentation. More central even have, as far as I understand it, there were live central news bulletins at 1am and 2am and things like that. For goodness sake. We've got stations like HTV with their nightclub. I've never been able to establish whether there was a membership fee involved. I've asked that question many times on the podcast. Nobody's ever come back to me about it. So I think that joke's run its course. We've got TVS Late Night Late. Sing it. Pardon? Go on, sing it. Late Night Late! <laughs> If you've seen the Late Night Lit <laughs> intro more than three times, it will get stuck in your head and will not move. Late Night Lit's got it all because it's got harmonious singing, it's got big, bold, uppercase letters, and of course, what do you have at night time? If you just look out your window at three o'clock in the morning, what's staring back at you? It's an owl, isn't it? Yes, Late Night Light has its own owl. Unfortunately, it's not actually like a permanent member of the studio presentation team, but it is there. We've got these little things sort of popping up here, there and everywhere, and they're all sort of doing their own things. Some of them are sharing programming. There's not really any original programming being made as far as for the network is concerned at this time, but you've got a lot of bought-in pish at this point. You've got things like, for example, okay, I feel bad speaking this way about Casey Kazan, but America's top ten. Hey, now okay. Now actually, I, I, I did set the video for that once. Oh, did I set the video for that? Or did I leave the video recording something? And then after that was Casey Kasem. I do remember watching the Christmas one a lot. You know me, I like the Christmas program. Oh yeah. And he did a Christmas one. He showed the Chipmunks and the Osmonds. You've got a lot of old films. Usually they'll try and sort of dress these up as some sort of theme. So they'll say, "Oh, look, it's Horror Night" or something like that. You've got things like, for example, old sitcom repeats, things like Freeze Company, Too Close for Comfort, things like that. You have your American film review preview type shows, for example. Some of the stations actually had things like CNN News. And it depends on where you were in the country as to what service you were going to get because it would vary from region to region to region. It had Donahue, didn't it? Yes, yes, they did, yeah. And I sent you earlier on a bonkers 24-hour television promo from Scottish television, which went 24 hours in February of 1988. And at that time, they were sharing programming and partially sharing presentation with Granada. And they've got this trailer that's basically like every random clip that you could possibly have found in the clip bucket and you've shoved them all together with a soundtrack that makes no bloody sense. And it's almost like 24-hour television itself is a thing. In the same way as in 1983, TVM is saying, look, it's television at breakfast. Isn't this amazing? As if that's going to be enough to actually carry it over and make it a success. 
I quite like that. You see, I, well, yeah, I agree. I agree. I always like that. Like the, the well, the thing to say is that those early attempts—they're all youth orientated. They're all extensions of youth television, and there is that sense that this TV is being made by people like you, who have not actually got full access to all the resources, so they're just going by the seat of their pens. They've been given the key to the archive and said, right, you can't touch shelves 1 to 27, everything after that, that's yours. All oh, right, okay, this is a Gun Oliver Reed film here. Yeah, look, that's fantastic. Just chucking them in the basket. That's the feeling I get from that Scottish thing. It's, we got stuff. It's wonderful. I think the similarities actually here with very early BBC Choice. When absolutely nobody was watching it, yeah, they, they, were, they were pumping out like complete editions of Roy Castle's record breakers, for goodness sake, and and Play School and and and, and what have you. I mean, genuinely, they, they really it was it was fabulous. I was so lucky to have that at the end of '98 because it was like you just knew this wasn't going to last. Eventually, the more Is people. Is this like your experience of? Student television? Mm, not really, not really. Oh because dear, I'm glad I didn't do student television. Then. Student television didn't really have access to a library as but such. But just that thing of that magical mystery tour quality. I've had an idea. I've, I've been in this cupboard and I found this record. Can we use it? Yeah, fine. Of course, we've got to give proper kudos to the originators of all of this. Although you wouldn't really find any details of this in the TV Times. It's such a loss to history. But of course, TSW, they were the real originators of this. TSW, who a couple of years earlier received a letter from a viewer who congratulated them on their innovative <laughs> overnight programming, to which TSW replied, what overnight programming? It turned out that somebody in the TSW region was pumping out pirate television Instances of pirate TV in the UK are very few and far between. I would love to find out more details about that, but unfortunately it's just something I happen to remember from reading on Oracle at the time. Maybe I'll be able to dig out something about that one day. 88 is the year when it really officially happens. 24-hour television eventually reaches the entire ITV network by the end of that year. The local presentation is still continuing, so it's not like we've suddenly got one unified brand. And then why should we anyway? Because we don't have one unified brand on ITV at this time. Even though they're going to do the whole get ready for ITV business in 1989 and what have you, which was a partial success, we've still got local presentation and we're still going to have local presentation all the way until 2002. So it makes sense all the regions would be doing their own thing. But it is quite fascinating looking at the difference between LWT producing nighttime for a while with really no continuity announcers whatsoever, and then something like, for example, TVS or say Anglia or HTV, where you've got a presenter there actually responding to people's letters and, and so on with, with live continuity. It's almost like there's a nice little club atmosphere there because they're probably going to have a regular audience. There's a few people in the first few nights would tune in out of curiosity and people like ourselves would be setting the video recorder for the odd thing here and there, but people are actually watching the service regularly. Yeah, it makes sense to, to have a nice family atmosphere and keep them on board. 88 really is the first time when we start seeing networked programming and probably the most famous of them all, well actually there's probably a few contenders, but first of all of course we've got Night Network, which came from London Weekend Television. It started in 1987 before most of the country had 24-hour TV. It finished in 1989 by which time everybody had it. So do you remember seeing any Night Network at all? Did you ever tape it? 
I did tape it because I'd heard they were showing the Beatles cartoon, but it was never a guaranteed thing. And any time I did set the video for it, they weren't showing it. They did show the Adam West Batman, and they showed it strangely adapted. I'd love to see some of those again because they would sneak the Night Network logo into the episodes. Just uh, I think last week, one of the channels over here was showing a King Tut episode and a blade shoots out of a statue. And I was just half expecting the blade to shoot out and have Night Network written on it. Of course, it didn't this time. <laughs> but it was that kind of thing. There was another one where Batman's thinking. And as he's thinking, he sort of goes into a little reverie. And this Night Network logo starts spinning above his head. Like that's part of his thought process. <laughs> I do remember, yeah, I remember Night Network at the time. And usually my memory of it is being a couple of hours, Friday and Saturday night. For a while, it had a first hour that only went out in London. There was even, supposedly, for a little while, in 87, 88, uh, a Sunday night version, which tends to have old films. A traditional, say, Friday night, traditional Saturday night for me, at that time, 24-hour TV would be, on the Friday night, you've got James Well Radio Show, and you've got Night Network. On the Saturday night, you've got Night Network, and it's bookended by The Hitman and Her. Now, I know that you weren't in the radio air, region because you were Pennine radio weren't you? I think you could get air if you really wanted to Did you know of James Will before you ever saw the James Will radio show on ITV? No I didn't I have to admit that I probably recorded that a few too many times I was quite familiar with the James Will radio show and I remember actually sort of thinking at the time that this is of not necessarily a lower standard of what you'd normally get on television but definitely the the reins are somewhat looser. And not just because it was a simulcast of the radio show, so it was being <laughs> taped in the radio studio, but also just the kind of things that they could do. And you could have Doc Cox singing a filthy song, or you could have, for example, them putting out the entire Girls on Film Duran Duran video for then James Will to pretend to be upset about after it had gone out and saying, look at this material, isn't this shocking? Isn't this isn't it appalling? This kind of thing goes on. You know what? I watch more James Whale than I realise, because now as you're talking, it's all coming back. I definitely remember Doc Cox doing an Ivor Biggin song. I remember him showing If I Could Turn Back Time, the Cher video, and saying this is about the only time you'll see this on British television, because she's wearing so few clothes. I remember him either having black lace or somebody impersonating black lace. I'm still not entirely sure, because he was so insulting to them to their faces, uh, singing the dirty version of Agadoo. <laughs> So, yeah, I caught a lot of that for some reason. I, I seem to remember, for whatever reason, his dump button was actually like a sort of clicker that was in his hand, like a Wellerman's. I never saw the infamous Rob Newman incident. Oh, what's this? I don't know this. Google it. Rob Newman, James Whaleshaw. It starts out as crosstalk and it quickly descends to insults and then Rob Newman runs out of the studio. <laughs> And the supposedly famous incident with Wayne Hussey that I also don't remember. Oh? I just think he was in a bit of a state. Okay. Yes, that was meant to be dangerous television. I suppose that if anything had happened that was really sort of untoward, which is not very likely, because, you know, after all, this is a professional radio station, or an ILR-licensed broadcaster, so if anybody tried to drop the F-bomb or something like that, it would get dumped. So there was never really any... Are there several shows on YouTube? Didn't we found an unusual number, i.e. some, on YouTube? 
I think we did. I mean, sometimes it's more likely you're going to turn up episodes of Whale On, which was like a 90s show they did later on. It was a sort of like a overnight version of like Kilroy, but that was... That's the one with Jerry Hayes, isn't it? Yeah, and that was pre-taped, and so straight away he just knew it wasn't going to be as good, you know, because there was never any kind of dangerous atmosphere about that. We're working our way up to the night shift, aren't we? I don't mean the night shift as in the YTV. No, no, it's, it's it's on the notes. Don't worry about that. No, I'm passing over to yourself on that. Okay, it sounds laughable now. But yeah, I remember thinking at the time, James Will Radio Show, it was like, you've got to tape it because you never know that something might just happen on it or something like that. So it was a fun show for a Friday night. I actually found it a lot more entertaining than something like The Word. Night Network itself, like we've talked about, that was carried by most of the region. Central, funnily enough, was always quite a stickler for their independence and they never took Night Network at all. For some reason, Central showed a hell of a lot of job finder. It's your job finder for hours on end. Where sometimes, like, like my region Scottish and what have you, a lot of them would show up for maybe like an hour, or three quarters of an hour towards the end of the night. Central would put on like job finder at like half one until like five. Central, like their daytime and evening output, they were always really innovative with their idents. And I was lucky enough to see a little bit of Central nighttime around about 1997, 98. And even overnight, they always looked the part. And they had some great idents at this time. Okay, so the other program that probably people will tend to reference for this particular era of ITV Nighttime is The Hitman and Her, which we were just talking about off air a few weeks back. And I think I confessed to yourself at the time that I didn't actually know until about last week that The Hitman and Her was taped. I thought it was a live show. I thought they just would go over to the nightclub, wherever the hell it was, in Bridlington or somewhere, and then just point a camera at the audience and just say, right, go on, just do whatever you want. I, I sort of realised now that those shows were probably in the can several weeks before they went out. I have nothing to say. For some reason, The Hitman and Her managed to completely pass me by. And that one we watched on YouTube was the first time I'd ever properly watched it. Which I only use as an excuse to be uh, rude about people from the Calder Valley, but in a friendly way. So you know the way that the chart show used to have those little bits of information, you know, produced on the Amiga, and then later when you had like pop-up video, I think, on, was it MTV? So you've got like little bits of information appearing. The Hitman and Her had their own sort of take on that, which was just to have like one line, not, not even announcements, it was more like commands. It was just things like, get down on it, exclamation mark. As if, you know, they'd actually spotted that you were in the process of nodding off in the chair. And so the television was, was actually saying to you, no, you should be enjoying this, you should be taking part. I remember a lot of sort of multicolour graphics and, and that, that kind of thing. I don't remember really a lot of interaction with the audience. I don't ever remember the audience too often having a microphone put in front of them. They were, just, they were there to dance, that was what they were there for. And... I don't ever remember it being like like a couple of years back. Channel Four had this like all night. I don't know. I'm going to embarrass myself. I don't know what the hell you'd call it these days. I mean, what do you call dance music these days? But they had an all night dance music doings, which was live. It was properly arranged, and you had your DJs doing their sets and what have you. Whereas that felt much much larger scale. The Hitman and Her. It was like these are buildings with low ceilings, probably like partition walls and things. Okay. Come. come. <laughs> Can we say what I said when we watched that one? Was it a club in Halifax? And I had possibly unfairly said that if this club's in Halifax, anybody who's really happening, anybody who's really on the edge, anybody who's going to really look good on camera has gone to Leeds. (laughs) I, I would agree with you, but 
as was such a shock to my system to discover that the Hitman and Her was actually pre-taped, even if you were in the habit of going to Leeds from Halifax on a Friday or a Saturday night, once you got wind that the local nightclub was going Frequently to... in Halifax. <laughs> oh man, the bean burgers they used to do in Peace Hall. Fantastic. <laughs> once you were told that the Hitman and Her were going to be recording at your local nightclub, you would have gone there that night, wouldn't you? It's like a church that hears that it's going to be on Songs of Praise. There's not going to be an empty see anywhere in the pews, is it? Fair enough. Okay. Th- <laughs> Thank you for uh, rescuing the whole thing from my unpleasant hipster <laughs> sneer. I'd l- unless I'm wrong and it was live. But actually, I really like that idea that they'd done it live and they turned up at a club and it was like a quarter full. That would have been fabulous because then you have people. Pete Watman just sort of like running around trying to make up the space in the dance floor. Well, they hadn't even pre-arranged. They just turned up. Bouncers won't let them in. Turned up at a working man's club. The two guys playing dominoes and nursing pints for the entire night. Speaking of which, the night shift. Come on then, night shift. That was one of the things I watched as part of research for this because there's one on YouTube and. I do recall shocking somebody who uploaded two editions of the Night Shift to a place where people downloaded television back in the good old days of the free net by telling them that when I left the UK, I left the UK with an MP3 and MP4 player in my pocket that had those two editions of the Night Shift on there, and I watched them on the plane from Zurich to LA... Because I needed things to watch. And some people sneer and laugh at the night shift. But the one I watched on YouTube was wonderful. Because it was just like, well, we're getting a bit hungry, so let's go and get some fish and chips. And he walks into a fish and chip shop and asks, what are you, are you having spring roll fish and chips? No, you're just you having spring roll too? you having fish and chips? Right. Uh, can we get some? And it just feels real. It feels... Like what being out at night really is. <laughs> the Hitman and Her experience, that's kind of not really happening. It, it washes over you. The, the moment you really have a moment of presence, a moment when you understand what it is to be alive, is when you're in a chip shop. <laughs> and I want to go to that chip shop because they had a little restaurant in the back. Uh, the one... I watched on the plane, I the, the only bit I can remember, because a few years ago now, was some sort of water processing plant, and he was just wandering around. But it's like, wander around, see what you can find. It's exactly the same idea as what you were just talking about. Because there was this great feeling that, how far in advance had they planned this? They must have called a chip shop and said, we're coming over. But it doesn't look like it. It really doesn't look like it. And did they get everybody to sign a release form? So it's a bit like what I said about the IDENTS. Nighttime television was, if you weren't out at night, if you were too young or couldn't afford it that night or were feeling a bit ill, nighttime television made you feel like you were out. And the night shift is definitely part of that. Or if you live in Nile, you... Yes, no, I agree. And... Can I just clarify one thing? You said that you watched two episodes of The Night Shift on a flight from Zurich to Los Angeles. A bloody quick flight, wasn't it? Bloody show's only five I minutes I also long. watched Tony Hancock live at what was it, Royal Festival Hall. Some other stuff on there. This almost outdoes my anecdote about 
being on a coach from Manchester to Glasgow and watching Not in Your Nelly on an iPod Touch. <laughs> I'm still not convinced that anybody's ever done that since or before or at all. I'm not even convinced that I did it. So you had shows like that that were being made for nighttime. You also had bought-in shows. You had things like 60 Minutes, for example, the CBS Current Affairs show. You get like little instances of things like that which you didn't really necessarily know existed. Chart Attack. Do you remember ever seeing that? No, I don't. Chart Attack, as far as I know, I think that was a music box production. And it was one of those odd sort of shows that you wouldn't be too familiar with unless you had Sky at that time. So it was like a sort of a European broadcast. And there was Children's BBC's own Simon Potter. And he's in a green screen studio and he's presenting the top pop videos of that particular week. And it's obvious that you know, the like, title sequence alone was pretty smart. It's pretty big budget. And you just got programs like that, which perhaps had already been in production for other countries. And then suddenly you were getting to see them for the first time. And it was, it was kind of stuff that previously would have been the domain of, of cable networks and things like Sky Channel or Super Channel, whatever it may be. So it was always nice discovering little things like that overnight. The one thing you could definitely say about the service is that depending on what region you lived in, you didn't necessarily have a lot of adverts. A plenty of advert breaks, because a lot of the shows just had ready-made advert breaks in them. But some of the regions had great difficulty in selling the ad time. There's a lovely clip on YouTube, and I think it might be from Ulster Television, and it's of the Hitman and Her, and they're playing some sort of PWL sounds, where you get down, groove on, so on, so on. And then it cuts to the advert break, and they've got no adverts, and so you've got basically the static Granada nighttime caption, and you've got the most sombre piano music you can imagine playing. It was like it would be in a category A or something like that. And this plays in full for like four minutes, and then it returns to him and her, and it's like, well, hey, we're still getting all down, brilliant. And I'd like to imagine that everybody who was in the nightclub in Halifax on night was actually listening to that track for those previous four minutes, and were still being asked to dance just as enthusiastically. Like, for example, early Channel 4. Again, that sort of adds to its air of mystique. It's like, we've got advert breaks, but we have no adverts. What's going on here? What is this? How is this paying for itself? Is this service going to disappear next week, for example? And yeah, so in some regions, you would have public information films turning up at that time of the night as well. And sometimes you'd have the night shift. I think that was one of the things it was used for, for overruns. By the way, the Wikipedia page about the night shift is great. It's clearly written by somebody who's a big fan. It's written by yourself. You've just written it in the last five minutes, <laughs> be honest. Do you think it's actually written by Mr. Bennett himself? You do occasionally get that kind of thing turning up on YouTube where you see clips of like a particular performer and then you realise it's them that's actually uploading them to YouTube and it's from their personal collection. Quite like that kind of thing. We're about to move into an era of consolidation. So... Before we do that, I just want to mention finally TSW, when they actually started their, their legit overnight service. They were taking Granada's programming, but they produced their own iDents, and it was just basically called Television Southwest Nighttime, but that was the best iDent, potentially the best iDent ever made on television anywhere on the planet, because they had, obviously it was animation, but it was supposed to be like a view from space of planet Earth. But Plymouth was about the size of the Great Wall of China times 1,000. So if, if you were, for example, part of the Apollo missions, and then you looked down and you could see planet Earth, if you really looked carefully enough, 
you would see the TSW presentation suite waving at you. That's how big the Southwest region was in that picture. And spot on. Before we get on to, I suppose what you would say is a slightly more unified approach, we have to mention what was going on on the other side. So let's say it's 1992, you've got access to multi-channel TV, you're a little bored with that particular evening's edition of Get Stuffed on ITV Nighttime. You switch over to Channel 4, they've probably got some bloody art house movie on. Sky 1 is probably showing pages from Sky Text, which never really had the lure of pages from CFAX, never really felt as big budget. BBC One is either going to be off the air, more likely, or if it's a cold night, it's going to have the test card on. But then in 1992, this secretive and vaguely sinister service called BBC Select begins. I remember the trailers. How did they portray it in the trailers? They said that you had to buy a selector. I think it was a familiar voice, and I can't remember which familiar voice did the thing, but one of the things they mentioned was programs can be viewed via this selector. It was all a bit secretive. I mean, it was all a bit sort of phase two. Do you know what I mean? If you get that reference, and congratulations, it's a reference to an Onion article about Starbucks undergoing phase two repurposing. You had, yeah, you had these programs that were going out sort of post 2am on BBC One and they had that lovely eye dent with the gold ring and that piece of music that never ended. And some of the programs were in the clear and so they were always basically programs that were more niche than Open University programs. So you'd have quite, I remember the British Medical Association quite often turning up This was something I was going to ask you about BMTV. Where where did that fit in? Because that's another thing I remember. I do remember that being on quite a bit. Uh, I remember occasionally you'd have programs for specific businesses, even sometimes for specific companies. I think this instance of a company's AGM, highlights of that being shown. You had programs about nursing and so on. And some of these were shown in the clear. Other ones were shown with encryption, like sort of early sort of video crypt style encryption on the screen. And unlike the Sky TV receivers that you could get at the time, these ones also encrypted the audio as well. Now, all I remember particularly about this is that they used to play out these little tests at some points between programs, and it definitely looked, as far as you could tell, like they were pumping out some 1970s variety shows behind that encryption. It really looked like they had something like maybe the Hot Shoe Show on or something. It was like some sort of choreographed dance routine that was going on. I'd love to think it was actually complete episodes of the Black and White Minstrel Show that they were pumping out. And they'd actually set the encryption key so that even if you had the encryption key for BMTV, you still couldn't get this. You had to actually be a BBC employee to receive this. Maybe they pumped out every single edition of the Melting Pot while they were at it. I wouldn't even know where to begin to get one of these damn decoders, even if I wanted to see any of this, which I didn't. Because it wasn't like Sky. It wasn't like it was pumping out entertainment programming or anything like that. But did you have to get, like, accreditation for this? Could you just go and, you couldn't just go and buy a box and cut The fact that I saw... A trailer indicates it wasn't that secretive. Oh, no, they had the listings in the Radio Times. I remember that much. But no, I'm thinking, as far as actually getting reception of this, did you have to have accreditation from either an employer or, like, did you have to work in the public sector or something, even if you had the box? I should know. I could probably Google it right now. It's nice to maintain an order of mystique. So let's just leave it at that. BBC Select, the channel that no one ever saw, and of course, the whole idea, though, was this would work in tandem with the video recorder, and I think that piece of kit is also the beginning and the end of nighttime television as its own thing. You talked about how 
we might set the recorder for Night Network or James Whale. But then eventually it's going to occur to somebody, well, why don't we put something everybody wants to watch? Once time shifting becomes second nature, what's the point of showing something niche to the people who are up at that time? And then there's cable. That's why it's a short-lived thing. It's those two technological developments kill the idea of it nighttime being its own special time because then the audience is fragmented. And if you want to go somewhere for something youth-orientated and super hip, there'll be a channel for that. Before we effectively get to the present day, we've got, I suppose you would say, we've got one last throw of the dice by ITV. Throughout this period of time, we've covered Music Box 86 all the way up to the point where BBC Select's going on, 1992 through to 1994. And throughout that period of time, the little regional options, they're slowly converging into about three or four. And you've also got, of course, you've got the whole franchise upheaval of 93, so that you have, for example, not only stations like TSW disappearing and then West Country comes along and they don't attempt to do their own presentation like the predecessor had done, but also you've got some of the stations merging and you've got takeovers and things like that. So you're talking about Night Shift, for example. Night Shift eventually became the service for Yorkshire and Time Tees because those two stations eventually came together, even though they maintained a, some sort of separate presentation at various times of the day. I believe the Night Shift presentation merged at one point and then split again. Yes, apparently so, yes. One of the few instances you can actually think of that kind of thing happens, it's usually one-way traffic. But by this time, then, we've got four players on the go. So we've got Granada, the nighttime service, the one with the kitty cat and what have you, and probably that's the one that most people listen to this will be familiar with because it had quite a lot of reach. Not only, of course, was it in Granada, but you would have had it all the way up at Grampian and you would have had it down south in a lot of the English regions and so on. For a while, Thames and LWT had a shared service. When Carlton came along, they ended up doing a service with Meridian, who just arrived as well, and LWT did its own thing. You had Yorkshire and Tainties together, like we said, and also Scottish television always did its own thing, whereas Grampian and Border took the Granada service. But even then, they're still sharing a lot of programmes, so you don't tend to get too much variety as far as schedules are concerned. Sometimes you had regional variations, like the Yorkshire Time Tea service would sometimes show Bollywood films on a Sunday night, for example. But by 1995, pretty much now all of this is gone. We've got one service that's been produced by the London News Network, and they are pumping out one service to almost the entire country. And in order to, I suppose you'd say, celebrate this fact... Just explain London News Network. London News Network was a joint effort by Carlton and LWT. When Carlton arrived, they proposed to LWT, why don't we actually produce a seven-day news service for London, whereas previously it had always been split between Thames and LWT. And eventually LNN started to get into other areas of presentation, and this was one of them. So they ended up actually supplying the programmes to Granada's nighttime service before finally taking over the presentation for the entire thing in the middle of 95. And in the autumn of 95, they announced that they're going to they're going to have a whole new slate of programming. It's going to arrive on the air right at the end of 95, sort of New Year's weekend. And I remember it being quite a big deal. It got a lot of column entries in the newspapers. Even my region, Scottish, that wasn't taking the presentation, still took the programmes themselves. And, for example, this was the era in which we had things like God's Gift. We had Carnal Knowledge. We had Hotel Babylon. 
pajama party. We had the good sex guide. And to quote our Anthony in the royal family, is the equaliser not on? So even though this was like a big story at the time, they made a lot of noise about this, some of these shows lasted for longer than others. Now, Till, I know that you would never, for example, have seen God's Gift or no. Parent Knowledge, and there's a reason for that. Pray what is the reason, he said, pretending he didn't know. <laughs> oh, do you want me to tell you? Yeah, that was the idea, because I thought you were busting to tell... I mean, if you want me to tell you... No, no, you... Bruce Gingell, wasn't it? Exactly, yes. There you go, Bruce Gingell. Yes. He had concerns about the the moral decline of the third channel, and that's why you had a nice little season of Alan Wicker programmes, for example, instead of a series called, I think it was Hollywood Sex, that was on on the network one evening. And yeah, there was quite a few instances of this where a lot of this sort of common down-market, lowest-common denominator tripe was replaced with shows such as American Gladiators, for example. And that's actually a straight swap. In place of the Good Sex Guide, on one occasion, American Gladiators was a replacement. I have a question. Did we get Hotel Babylon? I believe that you did. Okay. I have no memories of Hotel Babylon. Because it was the word, but on ITV. In front of me here, I've got a little piece from the Times, and I think it was October 1995, and this is when they announced that these new programmes were going to come to the screens. So it said, ITV has lined up a series of sexy shows for its new late-night schedule. Now, straight away, some people have read that sentence and they're thinking, they're going to have Playboy on ITV. Way hey, do I have to get a BBC Select decryption device for that? But no, Carnal Knowledge, a comedy quiz show, tests contestants' knowledge of sex, while God's Gift is a 50-part dating game series. Danny Bear, who hosted Channel 4's The Word, will present Hotel Babylon, an entertainment and music show, referred to on Fantasy Football League at the request of Planet 24 as Hotel Babylon's Danny Bear. And Katie Puckrick will host Pajama Party, said to be full of unfettered confessions, laughs and breasts. Now, with such quality programming as that, how could it fail? Television with Attitude was the slogan used to promote this. That's not from research, by the way. That's from ITV in the first night time, which I'll mention again at the end when we talk about further research resources. But I do recommend that. So this hits the air end of December 95. To be fair, it's a well-coordinated schedule. They, they Actually, they go on air with this on the Friday night, then Saturday night you've got the next batch of programming, and Sunday night you've got the next batch of programming after that. And it went out in all the regions. And yeah, it actually it sort of felt a little bit special at the beginning. It didn't really last too long. One of the shows that we mentioned there, apart from its promotion on Fantasy Football League, it also got some column inches for a slightly different reason. You see, Hotel Babylon was produced by Planet 24 in association with Heineken. Heineken were not just sponsoring. They actually had a direct line to the production. And they had notes. As happens in entertainment, we have notes. And they sent a memo, and there were certain things... More evidence of beer is not just requested, but needed. They called for less men drinking wine, which already sets my teeth on edge because it should be fewer men drinking wine. Preferably masculine drinks like beer, whiskey. And the audience should be aspirational, but not too much on the edge. There was a too high proportion of Negroes. Although the audience group seems to be a mixture, director and or camera crew have a tendency towards selecting just extravagant people. 
normal people should be filmed. This memo leaked. To his credit, Bob Geldof did dismiss Heineken's suggestions, and I think that was even before the memo leaked. But people say there's no such thing as bad publicity. Turns out not to be true. One of the other shows that was introduced at this time was the much-loved, much-missed TV review show, Bushel on the Box. I apologise, I don't know actually who wrote this specific paragraph. We got that in Yorkshire, because I remember him reviewing Paul Merton in Galton and Simpsons, and he liked it. Ah, right. Nice, nice. Well, apologies, I don't know who it was that wrote this on TV Cream, because a lot of names credited on this page. But I have to quote this verbatim, because this is so beautifully put. So, Bushel on the Box, 1996. As part of the hip, trendy, new ITV overnight schedules, on came a programme which featured Stan Boardman, Duncan Norville and Bernard Manning (laughs) on a number of occasions, once heralded by Select Magazine as the worst programme ever made. Each programme would be presented by the eponymous Bluto from his horrible stone-clad house with a working bar in the living room where he'd meet a series of stagnite comedians slag off everything on the BBC and lech over a bunch of page-free girls. Unsurprisingly, a Carlton production. Did you see much of the new, improved ITV Nighttime of 1996 yourself? I believe Night Shift or something like it went going till 98. I don't think we were getting the LNN-based stuff. So certainly watching the clips, nothing really struck a chord. It's only just then when you mentioned Bushel in the Box, which I think I must have only seen once. And probably the the two shows that are best remembered from that later era would be God's Gift and Carnal Knowledge. Carnal Knowledge, I don't know why, but I've got this idea that it sort of went on to exist in repeat form for years to come. Did it end up on like Challenge TV or something? I think maybe it did in like a late night slot. And God's Gift, a lot of people remember, I think it was Divina McCall that was hosting it. And just by sheer number of editions alone, it was like, it seemed like it was always on there. But Carnal Knowledge, I think that was made, if I remember correctly, by United Media, which was the Meridian Angry HTV group. Who, of course, had their own breakaway service. They didn't take the LNN stuff. They had their own service initially, I think, called Nighttime, that eventually called The Edge. They started winning a bit of ground from LNN, there were services that switched to Meridian service. Programming probably wasn't radically different, but I just thought that was worth bringing up. So that is, unfortunately, that really seems to be the last attempt at putting money into the service and and really trying to create some new programming and programming that was unique to that time of night. Because what we then end up with, and it's a fairly slow decline, it doesn't happen overnight but throughout the late 1990s into the early 2000s you've got for example the overnight programming it's more a sort of repository for things like sign language programming for example which you still see on there today you see things like Jeremy Kyle show sign language it's obviously a box ticking exercise but they can put it out and it's satisfied some sort of obligation that they've got I did get to see some bits and pieces of ITV Nighttime from around about 98 and at that time I had access to London and Central and also Meridian and it was interesting to see that you had you had some odd sort of presentation blips going on there. Ulster for example they were still using the neon that you had like you know the sort of the neon men that you had 
they were still using that slide, I think, as late as 2001, when pretty much everybody else had, had dropped it. And more and more sort of encroaching in the schedules, you were getting things like, for example, Job Finder was creeping up sort of earlier in the morning. The ITN morning news, which was an hour, was cut back to half an hour after a wee while. Then, within the last couple of years, actually disappeared completely. I found on YouTube a telescoped video of 1999 nighttime presentation. So I thought, this will give me a picture of what it was like towards the end. And we have Comedy Cafe, presented by Mackenzie Croaking character as Charlie Cheese. Then a repeat of CD UK. Then Night Scream. <laughs> I've got, like, times and dates in front of me, but even looking at them, they all still blur. So I'm trying to remember, when was that Prezi show? I want to say that was about 2001. But that was an example of the dying days of that thing of, we're going out outside of prime time, let's just do something. Over on Channel 4, Focus North. <laughs> that was an example of people who were not normally allowed access to television were getting access. You know, there's, there's the channels. Then the independents start to come in, and then the slightly outside that are the kind of people who are making shows that go out late at night. And then even that faded. So there wasn't that thing of turning on around about midnight and seeing people who were either going places or had given up and were just doing whatever madness they were allowed to do at that time. In, in my darkest moments, I even get nostalgic for Dare to Believe. <laughs> then I watch a bit of Dare to Believe in it usually passes <laughs> did you ever ring a chat line no no neither did i and yet why why do i know the number oh eight nine eight double five double five double five because that advert was on so much if you're sat around at home make new friends on the telephone on oh eight nine eight double five double five double five must mean at every break don't be bored and i can't remember the rest of that particular <laughs> advert but... That was another one. Do you remember the one with the couple who eventually meet up on the beach? So because the implication being that they phoned each other on this premium rate number and got in touch and now they're going to go onto the beach in wherever the hell it is that they are and it's clearly not Brighton in January. There's no doubt about it. The implication is that the second that advert ends they're going to go and do it right there and then. That advert was on a hell of a lot. I never wanted to call one of those lines. I was never motivated. If I had thought that ringing that number, they might have played me an extended radio edit <laughs> of their jingle, then I would have considered it. <laughs> they were still doing this around about 10 years ago because I remember for some reason, they must have been showing something on late night ITV in the mid-2000s. I can't imagine what. But I caught a bit of an advert and there was like a girl in lingerie standing in digital snow. And I don't think she was speaking either. She was dubbed. It's Christmas all over the world. <laughs> I'm sad. And then she sang a little song, la 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 la, text me. Because that's it, all moved on to SMS. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I'd videoed that or DVR'd it, whatever we did 10 years ago. I thought, I want to watch that again and again. It's got nothing to do with the girl in the laundry. It's all to do with the shoddy, shoddy <laughs> production values that you just can't get anywhere else. The adverts for the music compilations, the CDs, got a lot of those Time Life adverts that can well, be overnight. We've all seen that Limmy show. Oh, yes. Where one of the titles was highlighted but never got played. 
when we finish, I'll play you uh, Fingertips by There Might Be Giants, which I believe is inspired by those adverts. So it's just 21 little snippets of song, and you just have to imagine what the rest of the song must sound like. <laughs> Call Now. So 1999, we, we sort of have pretty much then the conclusion of any innovation, I suppose you would say, because by now we're now, getting... are you talking about ITV Nighttime? Or are you talking about On Earth? <laughs> well, we've not got, we've not got Sky Plus yet. Technology we marches on. Culture stays where it was in 1998. We can't be stuck in 1999 because that means that we could end up with a Groundhog Day in which days like these is on. Oh, we don't want that. So you've got then pretty much all of the local presentation is gone. You've still got Scottish doing its own thing. By this time, I think that they have consolidated with, with Grampian. But now you're starting to get... Have you ever actually watched ITV Night Screen for any length of time? For some reason, I associate it with a picture of David Jason as Micawber. <laughs> yes! That might be the one and only time I watched it, or maybe I watched it many times and they really, really pushed Micawber on us. If you're interested in finding out more, I recommend a series. It's it's a whole series. There's only one that's relevant to today's talk. There's a series called ITV in the Face. I think some of them are still on YouTube. But if you go to vimeo.com forward slash Bob the Fish and look under channels, there's a whole series, each one looking at a different aspect. Usually it's one ITV region at a time, but nighttime gets its own segment and looking at the various things. And we've said some of the things that are said in there. There are things said in there that we haven't said. And more importantly, you get visuals. And also the Wikipedia page for The Night Shift with Colin Bennett. It's really in-depth. Whoever wrote that must have worked on it. Must also mention as well, Wikipedia pages obviously vary wildly. But the Wikipedia page, it's actually... Slightly incorrectly listed as a Wikipedia page for Night Network, but it's really about ITV Nighttime, and it's absolutely first class. There's obviously a lot of work that's been put into that properly from multiple sources. Got all the different dates, all the different years for all the different regions, and it's really, really good. Also have a look at TV Live. They've got a lovely selection of continuity from around the regions. TV Cream that I already mentioned, TV Arc as well. There's tons of stuff online, so yeah, have a good browse. Before we go, little postscript. We're talking there about how 1999 sort of signals the end of ITV Nighttime being unique, you know, being something worth watching, having unusual programming on it. Let's fast forward all the way to 2010. STV, in one of its areas, but by this time they control pretty much all of Scotland except the borders, in one of their areas they start running this little program called The Night Shift, not with Mr. Bennett. And this is effectively. It's like radio, but on television. So you've got a live continuity announcer. And of course, by this time, they can encourage people to get in contact with them, not only by text message, but by email as well. And they do. And it builds up a really loyal audience for the, I think it was about five years or so in total that it was on. But they also had this funny wee habit that they would show archive clips from the Scottish television files. And I think I was on with yourself once till on Skype. And I've got the night shift blaring away. And I had to stop whatever the hell it is that we're talking about because I have to tell you immediately that STV at 2 o'clock in the morning is showing a clip of Molly Weir's Tea Time Tales from 1982. (laughs) 
there's no way of knowing this kind of thing because it wasn't advertised. It didn't give you like a full World of Sport type listing of everything that was going to come up in the space of the next three hours. So you just had to tune in. And they had interviews with people from like shows that they'd done in like 1995 and they were plugging like whatever program they'd been working on that week and saying, yeah, this, I think it's going to be on in October, that, that, that new show that I'm doing with uh, Robson and Jerome or whatever it is. It was fascinating. Again, it was like a sort of 2010 version of early 24-hour television. It was like, here's three hours, make something out of it. But there was no full programming. They didn't show complete episodes of anything. It was just nice little clips interspersed with quite often they have like helicopter footage of the Scottish hills. That went on a lot. It was just like Oh, here's some mountains. And we'll read out some text messages at the same time. It's actually bloody brilliant. It's a bit that they don't do it anymore. They've got a sort of slightly cheaper alternative on the air now. If you are inclined and you miss the days of ITV regional variations, it's well worth you typing in the frequencies to the ITV regions on satellite. If you Google Lingsat ITV, you'll find all the different frequencies and you can put them into your Skybox or your FreeSat box or whatever it is that you've got. Because overnight now, ITV runs a gaming show, I think it's Roulette or something, called Jackpot 24-7. But there are legal reasons why this cannot go out in Ireland, Northern Ireland, or the Channel Islands. So if you put in UTV, they might be trying to sell you the 2016 equivalent of the Rap 2, for example. And in the Channel Islands, where I think that the rules are even more restrictive, each time I've tuned in, they've actually been pumping out repeats of ITV's version of Country File with Paul Heine. And like sometimes this goes on for about two hours. So I really want to know who the audience is in Jersey that's just watching two solid hours of Paul Heine in the early hours of a Monday morning. I can't say that I've stuck with it for the entire two hours, so you never know. Maybe, just maybe, Channel Television has the complete run of The Night Shift. And they're pumping out Mr. Bennett on occasion. And he's still visiting that chip shop today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So, Tilt, what... Are we going to be discussing on the next fun-packed edition of Java Cakes for Proust? I don't know because I don't know what order we're going to put these out in. So it's to be confirmed, ladies and gentlemen. It is to be confirmed, but there is a list. There is a list of things taking us up to the end of the year. We have plans. We're doing research right now. We're watching shows. I've actually really enjoyed this particular podcast. I always enjoy the podcast anyway. But it's been lovely actually just delving into one particular area and really getting into all the little nooks and crannies and what have you. Well, if you've got anything for us at all, you can find us on Twitter. We're Jaffas for Proust. You can email us at our, I suppose you would say, generic address, feedback at sitcomclub.com. The most recent sitcom club podcast, which you can get at sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com, was discussing the recent BBC sitcom season. So, we shall be back very soon. And on behalf of Mr. Bennett and his cotton chips, this has been Jaffa Geeks for Bruce. Mm-hmm.